Open your Bible with me to Judges chapter 6. I'd like for us to consider the pattern again in this chapter. It will remind us a whole lot of some things we've just looked at in the book of Judges. And as we do that, there'll be three lessons that I'd particularly like for us to focus on for our own lives as we consider the text here. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 1, then the sons of Israel, guess what? Did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. So as we've seen the previous cycles, it began with sin. And then, starting in verse 2, we see what the Lord was doing to chastise the people for their sin. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would, come in, they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. The oppression of the Midianites was sandwiched between two 40-year periods of rest. Those two periods, the one before chapter 6 and the one at the conclusion of the Midianite oppression, were the last periods of rest that are mentioned in the book. The people of Israel once again had turned to the world, and once again God used the world to punish the Israelites. In this case, it was in the form of the Midianites coming in and raiding Israel at the time of harvest each year. They were forcing the Israelites to uh, find refuge in all the uh, caves and holes and, and in the inaccessible mountainous regions. And they were able to just sort of come in and plop wherever they wanted to in the land and take whatever they wanted to out of the land. They would annually raid to be able to plunder the, the livestock, the crops, uh, be able to get what they wanted. They had the camels that were kind of the latest and greatest uh, military innovation. And so they could just sort of come in at lightning speed, so to speak, and uh, get what they wanted to. It was a really bad time for Israel. They were, as the text says in verse 6, brought very low. And so what the Israelites did was that they cried for help. They realized they were in big trouble. Verse 7, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors, and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. The Israelites cried for help. Now the last time the Israelites did that, back in chapters 4 and 5, 
God answered their prayer by sending Deborah and Barak to deliver them. This time, the Lord does something different. He sends a prophet to pinpoint the problem. They were looking for somebody to deliver them. They were looking to be saved from the Midianites. But what God saw they needed was to understand what their problem was. God gave them what they needed, not what they wanted. They needed to know why they were being oppressed by the Midianites just to keep fixing the problem and not showing them what they were doing to lead to the problem really wasn't any help to them. So often what we focus on is getting rid of the difficulty. I'm in trouble. I need help. Come, come rescue me. Come, come solve my crisis. But when they cried out to the Lord this time, he sent the prophet to them. And look at what the prophet said. The prophet spoke for the Lord who said, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the Egyptians and from your oppressors. And I gave you the land. I'm the Lord your God. You shouldn't be following after the people in the land. The messenger identified the problem as they're turning away from God and they're adopting the idols of the people of the land. Their problem was idolatry, not camels. And their crying to the Lord should not be seen as simply some means of pushing the right buttons so that the Lord would robotically come to their aid and rescue them. God stopped and said, I want you to think about why you're in this situation. And when verse 10 ends with, but you have not obeyed me, it was a pretty tense moment. It was not clear what the Lord was going to do, whether he was going to rescue them or not. They had disobeyed God. That was the reason for the oppression. And God lets them stop and think about it a while. Now I want us to draw a lesson right here for us. When our sin leads to problems, what are we looking for? Do we look for a quick fix? Or do we look to solve the underlying difficulty? Do, you, do we just want God to get us out of our jam? Do, do we just want him to make us feel better? Or do we want to listen to what he says about the cause of the problem and the changes that we need to make so that we don't get in the problem again. I think that's a really good thing for us to stop thinking. Because it is not unusual for us to be more concerned about the consequences than to be concerned about the real crisis. It's not unusual for us to we want to get out of whatever is making us sad, but we don't want to change whatever led us into that. God said through the prophet, here's what the problem is, guys. That's where you need to put your emphasis. And so then we come to the final section, which will take the rest of the chapter. God raising up someone to begin to provide deliverance for them. In verse 11... Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, 
which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? <coughs> and where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. God called Gideon to deliver the people from their oppression. Gideon, at the time, was threshing in the wine press. He was trying to, to thresh out the wheat in a place where the Midianites would look for it, where they'd be able to salvage a little bit. A wine press would probably be quite small and not a very good place to thresh wheat, but it was an act of desperation. He was trying to get some food that they could have for the, the coming year. And suddenly the Lord was there. And the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Gideon didn't understand that. The Lord is with us? What do you mean the Lord's with us? If the Lord was with us, why are all these terrible things happening to us? And what happened to the Lord we've heard about that was the God of all these great deliverances? Isn't that what we tend to do? We tend to point the finger at the Lord when we're in trouble. Instead of acknowledging our own responsibility for our problems. God says, go deliver Israel. God is with them and God is planning to use Gideon as the instrument of salvation. But you know how Gideon felt about that. Very much uh, reminds me of Moses and some others when God called them. He's like, who me? <laughs> I can't do this. After all, my family's the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's house. I'm not the guy. Now there's something good in that because really it's only when a person senses his own weakness and is conscious of how unable he is that God can use him. And in fact, a little later on when Gideon becomes proud, He's dangerous and damaging to the Israelites, not helpful. So it's good that he's humble enough to see he's not capable. But the fact is, God would be with him. God said in verse 16, surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat Midian as one man. I think he's saying, I'm going to be with you so that you can defeat Midian just like it was just one person. You know, this huge army is going to be reduced to like it was just one man that you'll be able to conquer. And so he's promising the Lord's presence as a means of gaining the victory. Now I want us to draw a lesson out of that. 
When God told Gideon, go and deliver Israel, it meant that God would be with him, fortify and equip him to get the job done. When God tells us to do something, it means that he'll be with us and equip and empower us to accomplish the task that he calls us to do. Fortunately, thankfully, Gideon didn't stop with just saying, I can't do it. When the Lord reassured him, he did do what the Lord says. But sometimes we just keep saying no. Sometimes we just keep saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And the Lord would say, I'm with you. Do it. There is not anything the Lord ever asks us to do in his word that he doesn't give us the power and ability to accomplish. If the Lord is telling us to do it, we'll be able to. We just need to get up and do it. It is not in our strength we accomplish anything. And so when the Lord is with us and strengthening us, we can do that which on the surface it would look like we cannot do. Then the Lord gave reassurance to Gideon. Verse 17. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign that it is thou who speakest with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to thee and bring out my offering and lay it before thee. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a kid and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it is still an Ophrah of the Abizarites. So Gideon prepares food for this messenger. Quite a lot of which is impressive in view of the scarcity of food. I think it shows a good attitude on Gideon's part. And then the Lord causes fire to just spring up from that rock and burn up the food. That would have been a rather impressive thing. And it scares Gideon. Oh no, I've seen the Lord. But God reassures him that he's, he's with him, he'll not die. Gideon sees how unworthy he is. He sees how inadequate he is. And again, I would suggest he's the kind of person God can use. It's only the person who is willing to see he's not adequate and trusts in the Lord that God will be able to use in a job like this. But there's some things that have to be done first. Look at verse 25. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull... And a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. 
Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day that he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. Before God can use Gideon to deliver the people from the Midianites, he's got to remove the cause that led God to send the Midianites in to oppress them in the first place. God continues to identify what the real problem was. They've got to get rid of the idolatry. And it's in Gideon's own family. His father has an altar that's dedicated to Baal. And so God tells Gideon, go and tear down that altar and offer a sacrifice to God in its place. Kind of reminds me of Moses when God sent him to deliver the Israelites. God then tried to kill him because he'd not circumcised his sons yet. He had to get things right in his own life before he could deliver the people. And that's so often the way it is in our own lives. And I want to make that as the, the third major lesson for us. We've got to clean up our own life before we can do work for the Lord. The fact that right there in Gideon's backyard was an altar to Baal. I am assuming it's probably one Gideon himself had worshipped at. He can't deliver the Israelites until he's gotten rid of the sin in his life. It's kind of like what Jesus said in Matthew 7. How can you take a little boat out of some other person's eye when you've got a big log that's proceeding out of your own eye? You know, clean up your own act first. Sometimes our problem in being able to be useful in the service of God and being able to help others is that we're so sinful and so corrupt ourselves. It's amazing how quick we are to point out everybody else's faults, and how eager we are to volunteer for any work in the service of God, especially if it's going to have much recognition with it, but we're not willing to change our own heart and our own life and do what we need to do. Well, God tells Gideon, listen, here's what you got to do before you do anything else. And what he had to do was not an easy thing particularly to do. It would potentially set him against his own father, but surely we must put God's will above even the will of our family. And it also would potentially, and in fact does, set him against the men of the city. And so Gideon decides he's going to do this at night where nobody's watching. And he takes what had been used for Baal and he consecrates it to the Lord and offers sacrifices to the Lord. Kind of reminds you of Romans 6 where we should take our bodies that have been used for sin and rededicate them and use them for the Lord. That's the transition that needs to be made. 
Well, when Gideon does that, and the people of the town get up the next morning, and they see that Baal's altar's been torn down, they're livid. They're angry. Who did this? Found out it was Gideon. It's kind of a, a, a remarkable thing. They were ready to stone Gideon. The thing that's remarkable about that is that according to Deuteronomy 13, that's what was supposed to be done to people who encouraged idol worship. The very thing that should have been done to those who promoted Baal, stoning, they were trying to do to the person who tore down the altar to Baal. Heresy had become the main religion. It's a, a really remarkable thing that the Lord still wanted to deliver them with attitudes like that, with them trying to stone the person who's against the idols instead of stone the idolater. But Gideon's father came to the rescue. I don't know what all he thought. Maybe he was just trying to protect his son. But basically he said, if Baal's a real God, why can't he protect himself? Surely he wouldn't have to have you guys to deliver him from the hand of my son. And he manages to put a stop to their desire to stone Gideon. Well, in verse 33... Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Beazerites were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they also were called together to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali and they came up to meet him. So the crisis comes, the Midianites are upon them, and Gideon brings the army together. Then verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so when he arose early the next morning. And squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. And God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. A lot of times people misunderstand this event. The question here is not a question of determining what God's will is. Gideon knew that. It's a question of trying to confirm Gideon's faith in God's word. It's trying to get some reassurance that God really is going to do what Gideon knew he said he would do. Gideon's confidence in God's promises was a bit shaky, and he needed something to kind of bolster his faith that God really would fulfill his promises. Now, a lot of times, if we had sort of shaky confidence in God, we might try to hide that from the Lord. But I think Gideon did the right thing. He came to God and he said, God, I, I need some help. I need some encouragement. I need something to kind of strengthen my, my shaky faith. And, and God did it. God met Gideon on the threshing floor, and he made the fleece so wet, he drained a whole bowl of water from it. Wrung a whole bowl of water from it, maybe I should say and it was dry on the ground around You know, God almost always exceeds our expectations. You know, he does even more than what Gideon would have asked. Gideon said that's all it would take. 
to reassure him, but Gideon lied about that. He said, well, now I want you to do it the opposite way. Maybe you could imagine that the fleece would retain more water than the ground. So perhaps it would be even more of a marvel to make the ground wet and the fleece dry. But God does that too. God is so patient, patient with the Israelites, patient with Gideon. God wants to strengthen our fragile faith. He wants to give us reassurance and confidence. When we feel weak, instead of trying to hide that from the Lord, we ought to turn to the Lord and tell him we feel weak and ask him for strength, for reassurance, to renew our confidence and trust in him. Now the story is to be continued. We've just got Gideon ready, or almost ready, to deliver the people. And uh, next week we'll talk a little bit more about how that's accomplished. Uh, actually, I think not perhaps next week, but the next time I preach on Judges at least. So I appreciate your listening to that. Think about the three lessons that we talked about. Are we just wanting God to solve our problems? Or do we want to really solve the underlying problems of sin that have created our difficulties? And then do we realize that when God calls us to do something, that he'll be with us and give us the strength to do it? And are we willing then to use ourselves in his service? And finally, do we see that we've got to clean up our own life before God can use us in his service? Or are we more eager to be used than we are to correcting our own spiritual problems? I hope this lesson's been helpful, and if you need to obey the gospel this morning, we encourage you to come while we stand in service. This is my dear.